Children may be dismissed to junior church. And we're going to turn to a few passages. The first one is going to be Luke chapter 18. So if you want to turn there in your Bible. But as you turn there, I just, you know, I was thinking about that song, which is for sure one of my favorite praise songs. We fall down. We lay our crowns to the feet of Jesus. It's a scriptural song. It's very biblical from Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 and in other places. Um, I just finished a book, which I would highly commend to anyone, but especially if... If you're like me and you're more stoic and more in your left brain than emotional, I highly commend it, especially to you. It's titled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You know, oftentimes, sometimes in the church, that's funny, I just said oftentimes, sometimes. See, that's what happens when I talk extemporaneously. Um, Oftentimes in the church, we end up talking like the emotions are a bad thing, but God did make us emotional. And in a way, that's, a new modern form of the ancient Gnostic heresy, the Gnostic heresy. Gnostic is a cool word that means, it it means uh, mind. It goes from gnosis, gnosis, which is a Greek word for mind, thinking, knowledge. Knowledge is really the word we wanna use. And the Gnostic heresy went in two different ways. One way was that the body is bad, and because the body is bad, I feel like my mic, well, whatever, okay. Because the body is bad, eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you would want. And that was one form of the Gnostic heresy. The other form of the Gnostic heresy was um, asceticism. Because the body is bad, we need to live as ascetics and things like that. But it ended up talking like the body itself is, is, is bad. And sometimes we get that way in the church. We act like the emotions, the mind, the thinking, the psyche is bad. And that's going to actually connect a little bit with this new sermon series, which I'm introing today. We see the Gnostic heresy a little bit with the LGBTQ movement. Actually, we see it a lot with the LGBTQ movement because they're teaching almost that we have a secret knowledge that's, that, that separates the, our, our gender identity from who we actually are and takes away the physical nature of who a person is, which is totally wrong. And it is a modern form of Gnostic heresy, but we also see it when we separate ourselves from our emotions. So emotionally healthy spirituality. And the reason I share that is, I don't know if we realize when we're singing, we are engaging a different part of the brain. And it's a more emotional part of the brain. And that's very important as we worship the Lord. That's why it's important to have singing songs of praise and of worship as part of a worship service. In addition to the sermon and proclamation and testimonies and other things, of course, that we have in a worship service. So as we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, we're mixing our mind, recognizing God is holy, with our emotions falling down physically, or metaphorically. I know for some of us, when we fall down, we won't get up again. So <laughs> physically and metaphorically, falling down is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So I'm starting a new sermon series today dealing with life's difficulties. And I must confess at the beginning of today's sermon that, uh, and we're going to go to Luke 18 first, like I said, but as we begin today's sermon, that I actually changed this sermon this very morning. That's happened very, very rarely. The last few days I've been uncomfortable with it and God speaks to me in the shower. And uh, so I was thinking this morning, 
I think that happens a lot of times because there's no other distractions, right? We're a very distracted culture. I was thinking this morning, I need to get to the church and I need to totally rearrange the sermon. And I did that. So if you like to do the fill in the blanks, they're not going to match. Uh, my wonderful, sweet, amazing, beautiful secretary, who also is my wife, so I can especially say that stuff, did help me print out new sermons and staple them together. She didn't help me. She did it. I hit print, and she did the rest. But the sermon notes won't really match the ones in the bulletin. But, you know, as I labored over this first sermon, one thing that has really challenged me and that I've been really wrestling with is... I want to be nice. At the same time, my theme today, the very first theme of this, of, of, of this series is we are all needy in a broken world. We are all needy in a broken world. Even after we are saved, we are still in process of God making us more like Jesus. We are all in need. That's why we should all read Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We are all in need. We all have a past. Our families have a past, and they go back three or four generations. That's been proven. It affects us. We are all needy in a broken world. And some of you don't think that. And that's why I really wrestled with this sermon, because I had it written out way harsher. I don't really like doing that. Some of you would really like that. Some of you, even if it's about you, you like that. Some of you, if it's about other people, you really like that. And in that way, this parable, Luke 18, really is good. But I wanted to soften it. I wanted to rearrange it. So let me first ask, and you don't need to raise your hands because we might have some non-believers here and I don't want them to feel isolated. Uh, Do you know Jesus? I I think most of you would nod in agreement either in your head or or, or, or even nod that you are in, that you know Jesus, that you are in a relationship with Jesus, that you made a commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And and I would ask a second question. Do you really know Jesus? You know, there's this thing that's been said. It's a um, conduct unbecoming an officer. And I think about police officers or maybe military. Sometimes we have conduct unbecoming a Christian. You would think, if we really know Jesus, why do we act such a way? One of the parts of, I finished that book last week while mowing grass. It was an audible book. Um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Part of being emotionally healthy is we see people as image bearers of Christ. Every single human being is an image bearer of Christ. And we treat somebody with, when when we treat somebody with disrespect, we should feel convicted and repent. Right? And when we think bad things about other people, love believes all things. That's in 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things. That means it gives another person the benefit of the doubt. We don't do that too well. Do you really know Jesus? That's why I go to John 15 a lot. Are you in, a re- in union with Jesus? I used to love this book, Not a Fan. And the point was, we're not fans of Jesus. We're followers of him. I love that. I, I think it's great. And then I was listening to a John Piper talk about how there's only like one or two times in the New Testament where people are called followers of Jesus after Pentecost. Because if you're a Christian, you're not followers of him. You're living with him. You're in a relationship with him. You're in union with him. So you really know Jesus. Okay, for those of you that would agree that you know Jesus and you're in union with him and you're in a relationship with him, and guess what? We're all in process, and that's my point today. 
None of us are perfect. Hopefully we're, in a, a connect, we're, in a, we're connected with the Holy Spirit and God is convicting, convicting you of things. Um, I'll give a personal example, but first I'll give an Alistair Begg example because then that's not as personal. I was listening to Alistair Begg give a message a few months ago. You can hear him. He's outside Cleveland. And, and Alistair Begg talked about how a number of years ago he uh, re, reproved another elder at an elders meeting. And the very next day, one of his other elders called him and said, you need to get on the phone and you need to repent to him for the way you approach that. And Alistair Begg was convicted by the Holy Spirit and by this other gentleman and he followed through. And the other elder actually said, I want you to call me after you've done it to tell me that you did it. And he, the way he shared it, he followed through. A while back, had an argument with somebody not from this church, not even from this area actually. Um, you wouldn't know them. And the content of what I shared I thought was okay, but the Holy Spirit worked on me for a few weeks about how I shared something. And so we had a follow-up message and I repented to them. When the Holy Spirit's within us, and sometimes it takes some time, but hopefully things like that happen. So we're all in process. So for those of you that are Christians here, you no longer have any hurts, correct? You don't have any. I mean, Jesus has set you free. You're free indeed. You don't have any hurts. Not emotionally, not physically. You are perfect. I was listening to somebody uh, talk about going to the doctor. He's a more charismatic pastor. You can hear him on TV, but I'm not going to give his name. And this was like, uh, Megan and I were just at the beginning married, so like 19 and a half years ago. And he was talking about, he went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, why don't you ever come or something? He said, I'm not sick. I am saved. The Lord heals me. And I thought, well, why are you wearing glasses? Because if I believe that the Lord can just name it, claim it, if I just have enough faith to be healed, I'm not going to need contacts. I'm going to just have enough faith. And anyways, that's another thing. You no longer have any hurts because you're saved, right? We know that's crazy. Of course we still have hurts. The type of argument there for those that like to get into logic is called reductio ad absurdum. Reducing it to the absurd. Of course we have hurts, right? You no longer have any bad habits, right? Because you're saved. Of course, we still deal with some bad habits. After we're saved, we're not set free from all of our bad habits. We still might eat one too many waffles or drink a little bit too much Coca-Cola or, I don't know, choose whatever. We're still in process. We are still walking the Christian life, stumbling towards Jesus. So today I'm beginning this sermon series on dealing with life's difficulties. And during the coming weeks, we're going to talk about many of the difficulties of life and how, and how a Christian should respond. And some of these difficulties are personal. They're things that you really are dealing with. Some of them are just part of the world. In a few weeks, we're going to deal with the death of the innocent. How is a Christian to respond when it seems like the innocent are suffering? You would all agree, generally, that has nothing to do with hurts, habits, and hangups that we experience. It's just a tragedy. We're going to talk about that. Next week, the Northeast Ohio Director of Celebrate Recovery is going to speak and share her mini testimony and some other things about that. There's other things that we may or may not get into anxiety, depression. Now, I know if you're here and you're a Christian and you're saved, you don't deal with anxiety, right? Never, ever. Of course we do. And I can prove it. If you think you never deal with anxiety, I want to ask you to public speak and share a testimony in a few weeks. Because studies show that one of the greatest fears people have is public speaking. Their fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death. 
Jerry Seinfeld said that means that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the coffin than the one giving the eulogy. I'll let you think about that. We get anxious. We deal with depression off and on. Everybody does, even strong Christians. That doesn't mean they're sinning. It means they're dealing with being in a broken, fallen, depraved world. This series will end before Christmas, but I think I will use some leftover topics as occasional sermons. And after Christmas, I think I'm going to preach on heaven. Today's theme, we are all needy in a broken world. Even after we are saved, we are still in process of God making us more like Jesus. We are all needy in a broken world. Even after we are saved, we are all in process of God making us more like Jesus. And that's the thing. The first way we are all needy is we all need salvation. It's the first. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're going to read that here in a minute in Luke 18 uh, and starting at verse 9. Luke 18, starting at verse 9. By the way, Luke 18, starting at verse 9. If you don't have your Bible and you're following in the Pew Bible, page 824 in the Pew Bible. Page 824 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to read this parable. But after I share a few words about this parable, I'm going to share other scriptures to show that even after we are saved, even after we are Christians, we still have hurts, habits, and hangups. Some of them are from us. Some of them are from the world around us. Some of them are from other friends and family members in our past. Some of them are from just being part of a broken world. R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, a former pastor and author and theologian, shares, in 1969... This is him. This isn't me. I wasn't alive in 1969, okay? In 1969, he says, I worked in a church in Ohio. It was Cincinnati, great city. I worked in a church in Ohio. I was minister of theology and teaching. I also was the minister of evangelism. And I trained people in the Evangelism Explosion Program for outreach. Many of you know of that program. It's a great program started by D. James Kennedy. And they went door to door to hundreds of houses. And they asked them two diagnostic questions. Have you come to a place where you know for sure that when you die, you go to heaven? The large majority of people were not sure they were going to heaven. The second question was this. Suppose you were to die tonight and stand before God and God asked, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? He says we tabulated the answers of hundreds and hundreds of people. And 90% of them, 90% of them gave some kind of works righteousness answer. Works righteousness. Works righteousness means that we believe that we are, means that one, not we, but one believes they, if they're good enough, they will go to heaven. 90% thought if they're just good enough, they will go to heaven. Things like, I tried to live, I try to live a good life. I went to church every Sunday. I tithed my income. And let me just add right here, I've done evangelism and been trained in this way, and I've actually trained others in evangelism explosion, and oftentimes we do hear those answers. Oftentimes when I would go and share the gospel with people, I would hear, because I've been baptized. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized is an expression of that faith in Christ, is an expression, a public declaration of your faith in Christ. R.C. Sproul continues, 90% of the people answered that they are trusting in their own, trusting in their own righteousness for salvation. Sproul says, probably the worst answer ever given to that question was from my own five-year-old son. 
He says, I said to him, I said to my son, son, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God asked, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? My son answered, because I'm dead. (laughs) My own son believed in justification by death, that all you have to do to go to heaven is die. In reality, that is a popular view of many. People are sinners until they die, and suddenly they become saints when you attend their funerals and hear their stories that are told. We're going to look at Luke 18 first, because the first way that we are needy is we need saved. And it doesn't come from us. It comes from a Savior. In this parable, one person thought he was good on his own, and another person knew he needed God's mercy. The audience of Jesus' parable thought that they were okay on their own, or they were okay by keeping the Mosaic law. So we see the characters in Luke 18, 9 through 10. In verse 9, we see the audience. In verse 9, it says, He, that's Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice this. He told a parable. And who, who does he address the parable to? He addresses the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and even treated others with contempt. This parable is addressed to people who trusted themselves. They thought they were doing just fine and did not need a savior. What you should know And this is something that I had in the original sermon but took out so that you didn't see a very long sermon of sticker shock. But I'm still going to share it with you. You just lost a sticker shock so you can hear it now. Is that at this point, Jesus is on his road to Jerusalem. From Luke chapter 9 through Luke chapter 19, he's traveling to Jerusalem, but he's in Samaria. And in Luke's gospel, while he's in Samaria, he shares 10 parables that are not in the other gospels. The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of... um, The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's in Samaria. Most Jews went around Samaria. Jesus is in Samaria, and he's making Samaritans good guys. And in this case, guess what? He's in Samaria, which was like enemy territory to to Jews of Jerusalem, Jerusalem Jews. And what's he doing? He's talking about the Pharisees right here. He's telling this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This parable is first and foremost about salvation, how we become righteous, and the only way is through Jesus. People thought they were okay, but they were not okay. Some of you here this morning, some of us here this morning think that we're okay and we're not okay. Some of you, it might have to do with the first thing, you need saved. You need to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've been trusting in your works. You need to recognize you're not saved by your own works. You've got to trust in the blood of Jesus on the cross. Others, you think you're okay because you're saved and you think everything's good. You may not say, you won't say you don't have hurts, habits, and hang-ups, but you think that way, and we'll get to that in a minute. In verse 10, we see the two people praying in this parable. One is a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the religious elite of the day. They're the religious elite. They kept the law to a T. They were supposed to fast a certain amount of times. The, the Pharisees would quadruple that. They did everything extra. Jesus said they would strain out a gnat and swallow a camel later on. You know, and Jesus used humor communicating. This is a Pharisee. Pharisees thought they were okay. They were not okay, but they thought they were okay. They did not need celebrate recovery. I'm going to bring up celebrate recovery in a few moments. They did not need that. They thought they were perfect. And Jesus is saying they are not. 
They're the religious elite. They do not need help. They do not need Jesus, or so they thought. Then there's a tax collector. They are not even supposed to be in the temple. They were looked down upon. It looked like they had sold out to Rome. The taxes were not regulated, and they were not held accountable. So the tax collectors would charge extra taking advantage of people. So you have this fat tax collector and this Pharisee together in this parable. And in verses 11 through 12, we see the prayer. Look at verses 11 through 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. They didn't have to fast twice a week. That's what the Pharisees did in addition to the law. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. He thinks okay. He thinks he's okay, doesn't he? R.C. Sproul shares, the the Pharisee probably stood near the temple. He raised his head in his hands in prayer, and he thanked God that he was a righteous man. I wonder how much honesty was in this prayer of gratitude. He talks about all that he has done for God. But it's all about him, isn't it? It's all about him. I, I, I. I believe the audience was laughing at this. We don't think like Eastern people, nor do we think like first century Jews. Jesus' audience, especially the Samaritan Jews, would have, would have been laughing, thinking, I can't believe he, Jesus said that. Jesus is being a shock jock. He's going to get himself stoned or, or crucified. Of course, Jesus knew that he had to. In verse 13, we see the second prayer. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, we saw the Pharisee. Now we have the tax collector. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Tax collectors were looked down upon. This tax collector comes in great humility. The tax collector pleaded to God in humility. He asked for mercy. R.C. Sproul shares, in contrast to the Pharisee who said he'd never stolen, yet who stole the glory of God, and who was not an atheist, but was an idolater, stood the tax collector. He was probably by the door of the temple. He, in fear and trembling, wouldn't even lift his face up to heaven. His gaze was on the floor. He brought absolutely nothing to God but his sin. He had nothing to offer to God except his guilt. Be merciful. Have mercy. It's only by your grace alone, not your grace and my contribution. This man understood the doctrines of sola fide and sola gratia. That means justification by faith alone and justification by grace alone. Justified means that we are declared righteous by faith alone. We are declared righteous by grace alone. This tax collector recognized that. Further, Sproul shares, there are tens of thousands of Christians in America today who will affirm justification by faith alone, but not justification by grace alone. You really don't believe in justification by faith alone if you think you're adding something beyond your faith, beyond the righteousness of Christ for you to be justified. The only way to be declared righteous by Christ is by faith alone and by grace alone. The tax collector recognized that. In verse 14, we see Jesus' principle. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. 
To be justified means to be declared righteous. This tax collector went down to his house, declared righteous rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He came in humility. He recognized his neediness. He recognized his brokenness before God. The humbled will be exalted by God. This is a sum of the gospel. How do we get justified? How do we get declared righteous? How do we get righteousness for heaven? How can we approach God? And the only way is by Jesus. We are all broken and we need Jesus. This parable is mainly about needing a savior for eternal life. So the first point today is we all need a savior. We are all needy. We all need a savior. We bring nothing. We bring nothing. Isaiah says, even our righteous acts are filthy rags. And my second point today, even for the saved, we are needy. Firstly, this is because we are in a broken world, right? You can, live a, you can become a Christian and live a totally righteous life after that and be totally sanctified. I don't think anybody has, but totally sanctified, but you're still in a broken world. You're still affected. We are still affected by all the brokenness around us. Secondly, we are all needy because we are still dealing with our own sin issues. Once we are saved, it takes time as God sanctifies us. That means he is making us more like him. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 10. 1 John 1, 10, which is written to Christians, by the way, says this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Romans 8, 18 through 23. I added this scripture this morning, and I had trouble with where to cut it off, because Romans 8 is the most powerful chapter in the Bible, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is the creation. This is not just humans. This is the creation, awaiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation is waiting for redemption. Let me continue. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You can go to other passages like 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul talks about having this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I told Megan just last week, and, and we're going to hold each other accountable to this, that I'm going to allow my body to age till I'm about 50. Then I'm done with it. It's not going to age anymore because I'm already learning the problems. Of, of course, we can't do that, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay. And all creation is longing for redemption, longing for the new heaven and new earth. All creation. So what do you think? Are we okay? In the New Testament, after we are saved, we are called saints. You know that? After people are saved in the New Testament, they're always called saints, not sinners. However, we know we are still growing. Once we are in heaven, we are perfected, sinless, glorified, 
Until we get to heaven, we are not perfected, sinless, glorified. We're still stumbling forward in our Christian faith. Hopefully we're growing. If you're not growing, you're not saved. Now, that doesn't mean you won't take one step backward here and there. But ultimately, the pattern should be growth towards uh, Jesus. We're not okay. And guess what? It's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. It's okay to recognize I'm not okay. Some of you might be dealing with depression. It's okay. And we want to help you. The church wants to help you. There's other helps, counseling and medication and other things. That's okay. It's not okay to ignore it. It's not okay to be in denial. That's not good for you. It's not good for anyone else. Some of us live in denial. We would rather deny our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We'll come back to that. So I know what you might be thinking. Once we are saved, we are fixed. And I've already kind of addressed this. We are being fixed. Once we are saved, we are being fixed. We are being sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. God is setting us apart for his glory, for his purposes. We are being fixed. Our salvation is secure as long as we persevere in the faith. But for the here and now, God is in the process of fixing us. God is making us more like him. Beyond that, we live in a fallen world. Think of it like this. Imagine the Christian life like storming the beaches of Normandy. I like World War II movies. I like World War II history. I like history in general. And I cannot imagine what our men uh, and women of our military have gone through in the past and what our men went through storming the beaches of Normandy. Suppose that you knew when you stormed the beaches of Normandy, you knew from some special revelation from God that you're going to make it to the other side. You're going to make it to the end of the war. You're going to live. But you've got to keep going. You won't live if you stop. If you enter the, get on the beach, you know, you jump out of the boat with your 60 pounds or whatever of baggage on you. From what I understand, a lot of men just sunk as soon as they got out of the boat. They get out of the boat. They start making their way to the beach and they know they will live, but they can't stop. They got to keep going. And as they keep going, they're getting shot at. All their brothers are getting shot at. And guess what? They're getting damaged. They're getting damaged from seeing all the other victims by all the other hardships. And that's the Christian life. We got to persevere in the Christian life. We got to keep following Jesus. We got to keep living with Jesus. We got to keep pressing on. But even as we press on, just like those soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy, there's trouble all around us. And we're affected by that trouble, aren't we? We are. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Jesus washes us of our filth. And so the next point of this message is celebrate recovery. Celebrate recovery is code for spiritual growth. Now, this whole sermon series is not about celebrate recovery. It's about dealing with difficult times. But as I was putting together this sermon, a lot of celebrate recovery was just spilling out of my mind, so I gave it its own point. Just this morning, you can thank me later. I know you're going to be grateful. You know, we are going to start celebrate recovery at Bethel. And celebrate recovery helps people with their hurts, habits, and hangups. And it is code for spiritual growth. Let me ask you. Don't raise your hands. Do you have hurts, habits, and hang-ups? I do. And if you do not, you're already dead and in heaven. For example, do you ever eat too much? 
That was rhetorical, Craig. Do you have any relational issues? Do you have a broken relationship with a child, a grandchild, a sibling? Do you deal with any addictions? Maybe it's not you. Maybe you have a family member stuck in an addiction. If that doesn't bother you, I don't know what does. Are you unhappy when others are unhappy? Are you ever anxious? Are you dealing with grief? Are you ignoring grief? What about lust? What about pornography? I was visiting an older saint who is now with the Lord, and he said, I like Fox News. But those ladies in their short skirts on Fox News. Celebrate recovery helps with what we are oftentimes ignoring. Now, celebrate recovery isn't the only way. It's just a good way. That's why we need small groups, prayer partners, accountability partners, Sunday school classes, and so much more than Sunday morning worship. But celebrate recovery is code for discipleship. It's code for spiritual growth. And it helps with that. It provides a safe place. And in fact, um, I was talking to Laura Gobley, the Northeast Ohio director, and she, and she told me uh, to go in at Damascus Friends, and we can print more of these out, by the way, and get some of their brochures, which we're going to put out next week, and you can grab some of them. You know, they have little brochures, Welcome Home Veterans. They have a, a group for veterans. Now, when we start ours, we won't have all these groups because we'll just be starting out. But I hope, my prayer is we have all these different groups and more. Um, veterans. Uh, those dealing with physical, emotional, sexual abuse for men, sexual integrity for women, uh, and sexual addiction, uh, which studies show 70% of the men of every church are dealing with pornography issues, um, freedom from anger. Now, one point is a lot of times we're in denial. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't deal with anger. Well, ask your spouse, ask your children. Freedom from anger, love and relational addictions, uh, codependency. Uh, mixed issues. Uh, you know what they're starting soon? Oh, by the way, sobriety, of course. Gambling addictions. Gambling addictions. Uh, then they have something for high schoolers as well. Food and body issues. They're starting one for grief. There are so many times I'm meeting with a family because I've done a lot of funerals. And I think, wow, if we had a, gr- a group for grief at Bethel Friends, that would be just awesome. They're starting a group for grief soon. They're starting material for grief. Celebrate recovery helps with these various things. A lot of the times we're ignoring these things. I was listening to a Christian psychologist and author, Dr. Julie Slattery, and, and she had shared at one point, she said, we are all sexually broken. We are all sexually broken. And in her audience, you could hear an audible gasp. And she spoke at that, about that many other times, and she shared, we are all sinners. None of us are righteous, not one. And apart from the redemption of Christ and the daily ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can never achieve righteousness. Why can't we apply that to sexuality? It affects every single part of our life, our fallen, hurt world. We are all needy. Romans 3.23 and really Romans 3.10-23 shares about how we are all sinners, every one of us. We are in a sinful world. We are impacted by our sin and the sins around us, and that means we are all broken. God is fixing us. God is fixing us. We were all broken. Either we understand that or we are lying to ourselves and others. Some of you right now are thinking, not me. I'm not. I'm not dealing with that. I know this is probably very few of you, but some of you probably are. I believe you are, and so am I. Until we reach glorification, see Romans chapter 8, verse 30. In heaven, we are in a hospital for sinners called the church. 
Think about the spiritual growth of the Christian life like exercise. Some of us would rather just eat whatever, whatever we want, live however we want, and then eventually it catches up to us, right? We go to the doctor and they say, you need to get on blood pressure medicine. And you say, no. And they say, I'd rather you get on it now rather than me say, I told you so later on, right? But if we could do it over again, we would have rather taken care of ourselves the first time. It's the same thing with spirituality. We have these different spiritual disciplines, and some of them involve the church. Some of them involve things like small groups and Sunday school, but also celebrate recovery. And they help us take care of things before they get out of hand. Now, don't get me wrong. A certain number of people are at celebrate recovery because they hit bottom. I'd rather all of us get help before you hit bottom. And I know that many of you who might be thinking, I'm not needy. are the people who I get to talk to your kids. I get to talk to your spouses. I've been meeting with families before about a funeral. And the families break out in a big argument, yelling at each other, shoving. They take it into the parking lot. That's happened, seriously. Had it happen where I'm meeting with spouses trying to help them. I talk to the wife and she shares one story. I talk to the husband, they share another story. Get them together, and they get so mad that one of them storms out of the room. But they're not in need. They don't, they, both spouses would say they're not the problem. We are all the problem. We are all in need. We all need help. We do. You know, many times young men talk to me about their sexual sins. That's not unusual. However, I know of a pastor, of a particular pastor, who had a young man talk to him about a problem concerning sexual sin. But the pastor could not help this young man. You know why? The young man didn't come to church. His parents didn't bring him to youth group. His parents didn't bring him to church. He needed God's help, but any time there was a conflict between sports and church, sports wins. You know why? The family did not realize they are broken. Now suppose that young man started attending church. Suppose the family started attending church. Suppose the young man started attending youth group. Suppose they went to the landing, which is a celebrate recovery version for youth, and, and, and he got help from that for pornography addiction and things like that. He could get help, but you won't get help being individualized. You won't get help if you're living isolated. You won't get help if you're in denial and don't realize you're broken. Some at Bethel have commented with concerns about celebrate recovery. Some, very, very, very few of you, maybe just a couple, are concerned that we, want, we don't want those people around our children or grandchildren. But do you know why that comment crosses our mind? Because we don't realize we are all those people. We are all in need. I, I find it interesting, though, that we are concerned about celebrate recovery when we are not concerned about choosing a sporting event over church. Why are we concerned about celebrate recovery? We are not concerned about the dangers of wealth and affluence. Someone asked a missionary, I read this article a few years ago. I could find it, share it with any of you. They asked a missionary who's taken his whole family on the mission field overseas, and they're serving in a persecuted country. And they said, how can you handle this, raising your kids in a persecuted country with all the dangers over there? 
when they responded about the dangers in America that we are ignoring, dangers like affluence, dangers like the idolization of the media, all those dangers that we ignore. We are all broken. However, do we realize that we need a savior for this life now? We're all broken. We're all in need. Take divorce, for example. Even if you are not divorced, you might be affected by those that are. And if you're not, I guarantee your children and grandchildren are. Even if you're not dealing with the LGBTQ type of issues, and they keep adding letters, of course, even if you're not dealing with that directly yourself, I guarantee your children and grandchildren are, unless you're living on the moon somewhere. We are all in need, and we're in a needy world. So recognize two things. We are not okay. But if we are a Christian, Jesus is making us okay. We need to stay with Jesus and we need to recognize our brokenness. We must not think that we are righteous in ourselves. We're not. The Christian life is firmly making the decision to be with Jesus. That's that initial commitment. In order to become like Jesus, we're striving to become like Jesus. To learn and do all that he says, that's that spiritual growth from his word in arranging our affairs around him. And we are all in process as we grow to become more like Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Jesus wants to help us, but oftentimes we are ignoring the help, if, the help he wants us to take. I'm sure you know the story of the man caught on the roof. There's a great, great, great flood going on. He's stuck on the roof, right? And three different people come by and they're willing to help. One's in a boat and says, hey, come on, we're here to rescue you. And, you, and the person says, uh, God's gonna save me. God's gonna save me. God's gonna save me. The person goes on reluctantly. And then another person comes in a helicopter and the man says, God's gonna save me. Not going in the helicopter. God's gonna save me. God's gonna save me. And then somebody else comes. I forget how. Maybe in another boat. I don't know. Choose whatever you want it to be. Um, he says, God's gonna save me. He eventually drowns. The water rises. He drowns. He gets to heaven and says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent three people to save you. You turn them all away. Oftentimes we are that way. We don't realize we are still in need. God has saved us and he is making us more like him. We call it sanctification. We call it sanctification. And we are all in need in this broken world that we live in. And this sermon series is going to be about how do we handle these types of things? How do we get help? And I encourage you, don't be in denial. Of course, first and foremost, if you haven't, today is a day of salvation to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you so much for your help. Lord, I thank you for your help. Your help is not just about our salvation for eternity, though that would be amazing in and of itself. You help us in this life as well. And Lord God, we all need your help. We all need your nourishment. We need it every single day, as that hymn says. We need thee every hour, every hour. We need thee. And Lord God, may we recognize that. Lord God, I pray the Holy Spirit be piercing hearts today. Maybe there are some here, and I'm sure there are, that think, wow, I've been ignoring my anger, or I've been ignoring my anxiety, or I've been ignoring how much it tears me up about my child, my son's addiction, or that my son won't talk to me. And they'll be willing to talk to somebody and get support. Because you work through the church. 
We always want that one pill, that fix-all, but you work through the church. Lord God, I thank you that someday we won't have to deal with this stuff anymore. Hurts, habits, hang-ups, a troubled, broken world. We're not gonna have to worry about the death of the innocent anymore because someday there will be a place without crying or pain, without any suffering. Revelation 21, we're gonna have a new heaven and new earth and everything's gonna be perfect. Until then, I thank you for our union with you. You are the vine, we are the branches. Lord, help us all as we abide in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If this sermon or anything or God's been working on you with anything on your heart and he's been stirring you and you wanna come forward, I, always, I know I announce this every Sunday. Let me announce again, the altars are open and we have people eager to pray with you. And it may be you need to recommit to Christ. You've strayed from him, but it might be that, that, that it's just tearing you up, something else going on. And it may not have to do with you. It could have to do with a friend. It could have to do with a, a, a son or a daughter or, or something else. And we'd love to pray with you. Prayer is powerful. We'd love to pray with you. To give you time because I know sometimes it's difficult to come down for prayer. We're going to sing all the